like to do with Tong Lin begin now, slash ultimate bodhicitta. And begin the exchange with energy or texture or color.
object to mine. similar kind.
Hi, good evening. Let's start with the chants. Perchance. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path to omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Just like the six ornaments and two supreme ones who beautify our world, you were their equal in your mastery of compassion, learning, and realization that you practice hidden in the forest and sacred solitude. Longchenpa, who perfected samsara and nirvana in the state of Dharmakaya, Trina Ozer, stainless light at your feet, I pray, grant your blessings so that I may realize the natural state, the true nature of my mind. Evening and uh, happy July seventh. And to you as well. Thank you. I love the, the pictures that people have, their smiles frozen timelessly. It's very, very nice. Hey, tonight uh, we have a chapter on uh, Tathagata Garba, the Buddha nature, which I thought was a pretty amazing feat of uh, everything. Poetry, beauty, clarity, profundity, um, composition, uh, comprehensiveness, and uh, quoting from endless other sutras and shastras so let's go for it uh we're on page 205 chapter of the commentary the tatagata garba for those of you electroids it comes after the universal ground consciousness and sleep and he begins with the word the Let's talk about the word, uh, no, just kidding. The sutras of definitive meaning belonging to the final turning, i.e. the third turning of the wheel of Dharma clearly reveal the great secret of all the Buddhas, just as it is, just as the secret is. And these sutras are, and he lists this traditional list of uh, these 10 or so uh, Buddha nature sutras. Dharani Ishwaraja Paripicha Sutra, Shamala Devisha, Ananda Seven, Paripicha Sutra, etc., etc. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but uh, the last one is the actual Tadagda Garba Sutra itself. Uh, and many of these are translated, you can find them. Uh, some of them are very cool. The Srimala Devi is about Queen Srimala. It's uh, 
Uh, the main figure in that is a queen, a woman, in other words, and she's very profound and very cool. So it's uh, neat to have that among the sutras. And uh, the Mahaparinirvana Sutra is the Mahayana version of that sutra of the the Buddha's uh, great Parinirvana or passing beyond into complete complete enlightenment, as opposed to the earlier version of that sutra that's in the the uh, early sutras. This one is uh, about twenty times larger and has a, uh, some really unusual stuff in it anyway and that's also available in english uh, these sutras teach that the dharma dhatu that is the intrinsically pure nature of the mind or buddha element just helpful to remember that the intrinsically pure nature of the mind is the same as the intrinsically pure nature of the buddha element and that it is dharmadhatya, the expanse of dharma, um, the essence of the tathagatas, i.e. the tathagatagarbha. So these are all equivalent terms, dharmadhatya, uh, pure nature of the mind. But an element, which we'll describe eventually, and... Uh, and this is primordially present in all beings, primordially meaning it doesn't arrive at some particular time. It's always been there. It's present from the very beginning. Uh, and there is no beginning. He's sort, of, he's sort of kidding. It's just a phrase in the beginning. And it is unchanging. Spontaneously, meaning that it's not produced by causes and conditions. And from the very first, primordially, its appearing aspect, how it manifests, is the source of the major and minor marks of the rupakaya, the form, body of a Buddha, of a Tathagata. And its emptiness aspect is the dharmakaya, the body of ultimate reality. So this dharmadhatu, uh, Buddha nature, Buddha essence, has these two qualities, two aspects, the appearing and empty, empty yet appearing. The second one, the Dharmakaya, is beyond all conceptual extremes, since all enlightened qualities are naturally present within it. Uh, it is like a jewel, since it is unchanging, it's like space. And since it pervades all beings as if moistening them, it is like water. So here we have the first of many, many analogies that we'll see in this chapter. By means of, of all such metaphors, the Tathagatagarbha is set forth, as is said in the Uttaratatra Shastra, which is one of the five so-called dharmas or texts written by Maitreya or down by Maitreya to a Sangha. And uh, this one is the one that teaches the Buddha nature and is famous for that. As a jewel or space or water are all pure, its nature is at all times undefiled. 
even when it is it is obscured by impurities that are targeted to garbage, is itself free from stain. So it's only obscured from the point of view of something that's external to it. The nature of the mind is primordially luminous. As it is said in the Prajnaparamita, in 8,000 lines. And it's crucial. It's, it's not crucial. It's... Uh, it's important to note the different sources that he cites, as opposed to citing exclusively sutras or texts which are considered to be of the third turning. He also cites texts of the second turning to show that both turnings of the wheel, both the second and third turnings of the wheel of the Dharma, or both turnings of the Mahayana, support the teaching of the Buddha element, the Buddha nature quotes this extremely famous line from the, the Prashnaparamita Sutras, where it says, as for the mind, the mind does not exist. The nature of the mind is luminosity. And the footnote is sort of helpful. Footnote says, this text is usually interpreted as referring to the three turnings of the wheel of Dharma. And when the translators say this text, they mean this quote, um, in the teachings of the first turning of the wheel, the mind, like other phenomena, is mentioned as if it were a real existent thing. The Buddha talks about the mind of all sentient beings and the different aspects of that mind in the first turning of the wheel of the Dharma, which we have in the form of uh, primarily the Pali canon, the Pali sutras, which is completely translated and available in very fine translations. Um, and in this context, mind means the ordinary intellect, the mind as experienced by ordinary, unenlightened beings. And the second turning, which expand, expounds rather the ultimate nature of phenomena as emptiness, and this is on page 298, um, which expounds the ultimate nature of phenomena as emptiness, the mind is defined as being without true existence. So, as for the mind, going back to the actual quote, as for the mind, it's the first turning, the mind, or that mind does not exist, the second turning. The third turning, which has to do with the Buddha nature, Tathagata Dagarbha, the nature of the mind is explained as luminosity. The nature of the mind is luminosity, is the third part of the quote. And... Uh, you can find that in this book, the the eight uh, perfection of wisdom, eight thousand. Can you see the title? Eight thousand perfection of wisdom in eight thousand lines, translated by Kanzi, one of the amazing uh, pioneers in this world. And that, but the translation is weird. He says on page eighty-four, it says. Um, when a bodhisattva courses in perfect wisdom and develops it, perfect wisdom, she should so train herself that she does not pride herself on that thought of enlightenment with which she has begun her career. That thought is no thought since in its essence, sorry, since in its essential original nature, thought is transparently luminous. 
So you see the difficulty with translation. He translates this term as thought instead of mind, for starters. And, uh, but anyway, a uh, revolutionary line in that otherwise in that text that otherwise talks about the empty aspect. All the Prajnaparamita sutras talk endlessly about the empty aspect of the true nature of reality, the Dharmakaya aspect. And they don't really talk about the luminous appearing aspect hardly ever, except uh, in a few places in particular, that line. Anyway, uh, coming back to our text on the top of 206, this is the Buddha element. So this is a different term. This is not the Buddha nature, which is uh, Tathagata Garbha, or um, let's see, did he give the Tibetan for Buddha nature? They gave the Sanskrit. So here we have the Tibetan. This is the Buddha element or calm or potential Rick present in all beings. Uh, the Uttaratasha says, because the Kaya of perfect Buddhahood, the body, the uh, manifestation of perfect or embodiment of perfect Buddhahood is all pervading. And this is very famous. This gives the logic or the reasons for why we say that all beings have Buddha nature. And it's because of the way that Buddha nature is defined. And the first reason is because the kaya of perfect Buddhahood, in other words, the Buddha nature itself, is all-pervading. It has no limit. The Buddha nature has no beginning or end or no spatial delimitation. It's all-pervading, like space. So that's the first reason that all sentient beings possess Buddha nature. Secondly, because in suchness there is no division, because in the essential sameness of all phenomena, there's no separation between Buddha and sentient beings, or Buddha nature and not Buddha nature. All phenomena are intrinsically empty, and therefore there's no way of separating any one phenomena from any other phenomena. Thirdly, because they have the potential for enlightenment, and this is the interesting one, that all sentient beings have sentience, have a mind, have an awareness, and that very awareness is the potential for enlightenment, is the Rick, the family, uh, or the, uh, the potential that's present in all beings. And therefore, all beings have at all times the Buddha essence. This Buddha potential is said to be the beginningless, pure expanse of ultimate reality. It is the primordial Buddha within the ground, as opposed to the path and the fruition. But it's the primordial Buddha within the ground, as it is said in the Manchushri Nama Samkiti. There are no Buddhas, first or last. Primordial Buddha lists to neither side. So um, you can't say there was a first Buddha or a last Buddha or this Buddha or that Buddha. There's this one continuum of Buddha. And the Vajra Tantra in two sections says sentient beings are truly Buddhas and yet are stained by adventitious obscurations. When these are removed, indeed, they're truly Buddhas. So this idea of there being this underlying true nature of all beings as Buddhas, and yet there's this uh, adventitious this covering of adventitious defilements, adventitious in the sense of not of the essence 
of the underlying nature, but um, temporary and um, flimsy. Good term, but um, at the time when one is an ordinary being, the nature of the mind is from the standpoint of appearance in full possession of the qualities of the rupakai. So even while we're an ordinary being, the mind possesses all the qualities of the form embodiment of Buddhahood. Right now, you and me, all of us, even the most evil of all sentient beings, we don't have to name that one. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> um, since, however, the mind's nature, uh, sorry, from the standpoint of emptiness, it has all the qualities of the Dharmakaya, all the wisdoms, all the strengths, all the invincibility. Did I see a hand, Eric? No. Sorry, no, I forgot my camera was off. That's all. Oh. <laughs> That's okay. You're still dark, totally. We can't really see you. <laughs> it's just a silhouette. Uh, let's see. Since, however, the mind's nature is obscured by stains and is not actually manifest, it is referred to as the element or the potential. The element is the translation of calm and potential ricks. At the time of awakening, and uh, they're starting to give the Tibetan for these for many of these terms, which is very helpful. Awakening, uh, the term they're giving is Buddha. It's the term for Buddha in Tibetan at the time of Buddhahood. It is freed from all stains, and it is called enlightenment. And uh, the Tibetan there is the Tibetan for Bodhi in Sanskrit. Um, Cynthia. Sorry. So, the what it's saying there is that the re, that it's calling it the element or the potential, as opposed to full Buddha nature, only because it's stained. So, in that sense, though, it's. I, I guess I'm wondering about the difference between it being the same thing as Buddha nature versus the idea of it being like potential. It tends to sound more like a seed or a, you know, something that can develop into, but. In this case, it seems like they're saying it's no different other than there being the clouds, the stains. Do you know what I'm saying? This is the great mystery of the nature of, of uh, reality that you've uh, identified and that he'll talk about extensively is that it has this, this uh, inconceivable nature of being both fully present and yet a potential. It, it is fully present all the time, and yet it resides as a potential. And uh, that potential becomes manifest without changing. <laughs> How can that be? <laughs> That's the only way that it can be, is if you, if you uh, leap, if you do the great leap, take the great leap. Okay, I just wanted to check and see if there was something I was missing, but not. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, let's see. The only difference between these two cases lies in the complete manifestation or otherwise of the mind's nature. It is not said that the qualities of enlightenment are non-existent in the condition of ordinary beings and are generated anew later on. 
for these qualities are beyond all movement and change, as is said in uh, this cool sutra called the complete revelation of the essence. Sounds great. The ultimate expanse from time without beginning is the resting place of all phenomena. Since it is possessed by every being, all possess the state beyond all sorrow. As it was before, so later it will be. It is unchanging suchness. And those last two lines are extremely famous as the description of Buddha nature. As it was before, so it will be later. Or so later it will be. It is the unchanging. It is unchanging suchness. Very famous lines. And uh, one of the things that uh, ideally you get from reading Long Tempo is an appreciation for the vastness and profundity of Mahayana Sutras are literally vast as well as uh, uh, in terms of their lengths, just thousands and thousands of pages of sutras exist. And then uh, very profound in terms of, in, in their cryptic nature, just uh, um, uh, these explanations of the way that reality is and phenomena and so forth is. Um, that uh, has this that quality that we just talked about of uh, normally considered contradictory by the ordinary logical mind, but presenting these presenting in various situations and ways and contexts contradictory phenomena as being the way that things actually are, or aspects that are logically contradictory and consistent. And um, uh, they say that in order, or, or they said when the Tibetans try, and the Chinese were trying to translate sutras into their language, they said that in order to translate sutras, you needed to be a bodhisattva of the first Bhumi or above in order to actually translate sutras. And therefore, it's much easier to translate shastras, the commentaries on the sutras that explain condense, summarize, or as needed, expand upon the meaning of the sutras. Anyway, I digress. The luminous character of the mind's nature is unsullied by defilement. As it is said in the Uttaratantra, the nature of the mind is luminosity like space is without change. Craving and the rest are purely adventitious things deriving from deluded thought, and they do not defile. They don't at all impact the nature of the underlying luminosity. The Buddha potential may be classified twofold. One, as the naturally present potential, subsisting from the very beginning. And this is the, the Rick, the potential. And the developed potential, these two qualities of the potential, that uh, one is the naturally present potential that's there, unchanging from the beginning to the end, and the other is the potential that gets developed by the paths, which arises on the basis of the practices that remove the circumstantial or adventitious impurities. The naturally present potential may again be classified twofold. First, there is the naturally present potential that is the ultimate nature of phenomena, the empty nature of the mind, free from all conceptual extremes, which is the cause for the removal or separation of obscuring stains from the Swabhavakakaya. The Swabhavakakaya is a fourth kaya that is not 
always is not universally described when we talk about the kayas. Often there's three kayas, uh, but sometimes there's a fourth kaya that is used in two different ways. Sometimes it's meant to summarize all three kayas together. Sometimes Swabhavika kaya is meant to show that there's two aspects to the Dharma kaya. There's the entity aspect and the wisdom aspect, if that means anything. Um, but let's start from there. Anyway, um, so first, in terms of the naturally present potential, there's the uh, uh, the empty nature of the mind, free from all conceptual extremes, which is the cause for the removal or separation from obscuring stains from the Svabhavakakaya or of them from the Svabhavakakaya. Second, there's the naturally present potential that is the phenomenal appearance of the ultimate nature, which is the cause for the removal or separation from the supreme rubakaya. So formless in form. And uh, he just set himself up for something that needs begs explanation. He said, how can there be a cause for separation or removal? He just told us that that uh, you know the situation was spontaneous, so he's going to have to he's going to explain that soon. From the very beginning, phenomenal appearance partakes of the ultimate nature, the union of the two truths, the unity of the two truths. Parinirvana Sutra, meaning the Mahayana version, Sun says, "Son of my lineage, the mind's nature is naturally luminous. It is naturally devoid of intrinsic being." and is naturally pure. Its appearance is arrayed in the brilliant qualities of the major and minor marks which are not separated from it. So these are referring to the different characteristics of the Buddhist um, form bodies. They are, however, distinguished from the standpoint of appearance and emptiness. The developed potential refers to the potential that is purified by the cultivation of bodhicitta and so on. That is to the practices on the path of learning. Path of learning is a way of, a shorthand way of referring to the first four of the five paths. Paths of accumulation, joining, seeing, and meditation or familiarization. Whereas the last of the five paths is called a path of no more learning, Buddhahood. So on the paths of learning where transformation occurs. Uh, that is through the practices on the paths of learning which are related to skillful means and wisdom, the accumulations of merit and wisdom. As the Gandhava Yuhu Sutra says, ah, children of the conqueror. <laughs> uh, the potential of enlightenment consists in an earnest search for the Dharmadhatu, which is an instruction for all of us. We should be searching for the Dharmadhatu from the moment we wake up until the moment we go to sleep. Those who have seen this potential, luminous in nature and vast as the sky, are those who have trained in the accumulation of wisdom and merit. He gives this long quote from the Uttara Tantra that I won't, uh, uh, let's see, we'll skim through like a treasure or a tree grown from a fruit, the potential fruit. The potential should be understood to have two aspects, naturally, natural presence, that persists from time without beginning and perfection that derives from proper cultivation. 
from the potential's twofold aspect, it is said, the triple kaya of the Buddha is attained. The first arises, from the first arise the first kaya, the dharmakaya, and from the second, the latter two, the rubakayas, sambhogakaya and nirmanakaya. The swabhavakakaya, fair and beautiful, it should be understood as like a precious image, for it is present by its nature, it is uncontrived, and is a treasury of precious qualities. And in this way, they're, they're using the term swabhavakakaya to talk about uh, the dharmakaya. Like you, universal monarch is the Sambhogakaya, for it is sovereign of the mighty realm of Dharma. The Nirmanakaya is like a golden form, it therefore has the character of a reflection. Interesting presentation of the Kayas. Clears everything up, in case you were wondering what the Kayas were. <laughs> now, the Swabhavakaya, the nature of the mind the naturally present potential that is the ultimate nature of phenomena is like a jewel. Interesting that he's using the Sobhavakaya term as uh, synonymous with Dharmakaya. Within this spontaneously present state, there manifests the naturally present potential that is the phenomenal experience, appearance rather, sorry, of the ultimate nature. This is both the Sambhogakaya, which is like the universal sovereign, and the Nirmanakaya, which is the Sambhogakaya's reflection. That's a cool way of putting it. Um, and provides the support for the appearance of the Supreme Nirmanakaya, which is a, a Buddha like Shakyamuni, which manifests for the sake of beings to be guided. In the case of ordinary beings, these kayas are veiled by impurities and thus not perceptible. However, the accumulation of merit arising through the cultivation of bodhicitta and so on removes the veils that conceal the rupakaya, whereas the accumulation of wisdom effected through meditation on emptiness dispels the veils that conceal ultimate reality, the swabhavakaya. The potential that is naturally present and the developed potential, these two qualities of the potential are linked together primordially as support and supported. First is like the support provided by limpid water, while the second is like the various reflections that appear in the water. So the Swabhavakakaya is the support, like the limpid water, and the rupakaya is like that, the reflections appearing in the water, which are supported by the water. The potential that thus dwells within the ground is like an object that is to be known, whereas the developed potential subsisting in the present situation is like the knowing mind. Once again, they are linked in the manner of support and supported the natural potential, both the ultimate nature and its phenomenal appearance. As in a matter of speaking, the cause, uh, sorry, is in a matter of speaking, the cause that makes possible the removal of obscurations in a manner of speaking. It is not the result of it. The developed potential is like an antidote that dissipates the veils, but is not the actual cause of the two kayas in the manner of a causal process involving an agent and an object of production. This is what I mentioned a couple of pages ago where he was going to have to talk about how this process of uh, separation or purification comes about. Um, 
This potential brings forth a wealth of perfect qualities which are realized on the paths of learning. It releases them. The key phrase is it releases them. They're there and they're just covered. And uh, all that the paths of accumulations, of the two accumulations does is it releases the potential from the covering of the adventitious defilements. It releases them and thereby brings them to maturity on the level of Buddha. This is written in the Sutra Lankara, which is another text by Maitreya. The natural and the developed, the support and the supported, the first exists as cause and it does not exist as the result. The second should be understood as meaning the release of qualities. All beings are pervaded by the Tathagata Garbha. Nine images or similes are used to describe, to illustrate how it dwells in the midst of defilement. So this inconceivable situation of how something uh, can, can dwell in a fully developed state and yet be, uh, remain as a potential because it's covered by adventitious defilements is described by these nine analogies, very famous analogies. In the, uh, as is said in the Uttara Tantra, uh, like a Buddha in a faded lotus, honey in the midst of bees, like the kernel of a husk in the husk, and gold in filthy soil, like treasure in the earth, the shooting plant within the tiny grain, or like the image of the conqueror wrapped up in tattered rags, like a lord of man enclosed within a beggar woman's womb, or like a precious image hid within the clay, concealed by the defilements as adventitious veils, the Buddha elements subsist and sentient beings. These nine similes all refer to the Buddha element, which is obscured nori beings in the Shravaka and Pratyaka Buddha Arhats and in Bodhisattvas who are on the paths of seeing and meditation. There are four images that illustrate how the Tathagata Garbha dwells in the mind of ordinary beings who have not entered the paths, and also those who have entered it but are on the paths of accumulation and joining, the first two. It is present in their minds but is concealed by four impurities. The first image is that of the Tathagata Garbha that dwells within latent desire, and he describes it. So I'm going to start skipping through the extensive explanation of these analogies. Hope that's okay. And if there's any one of them in particular you like or want to focus on or ask a question about, please just stop me. Uh, the second image is that of the Tathagata dwelling in latent anger. The third image is that of the Tathagata that dwells within latent ignorance of the three what are called root poisons or root clashes. Um, Attachment, aggression, and ignorance. This image is that of the Tathagata Garbha dwelling amid the manifest, manifest and strongly active defilements of desire, aversion, and ignorance, as opposed to um, latent, the, the three poisons in a latent state, even within them, the Buddha nature dwells. And then uh, the Buddha nature is even uh, present within um, what he's called strongly active defilements that are manifest. And there's one image that illustrates how the Buddha element dwells amid the propensity to ignorance, as this is found in uh, Arhats, who 
who are very advanced on the path, but still not fully enlightened. The two, and the two images illustrate how the Buddha essence dwells amid the defilements that are to be eliminated by the paths of seeing. He gives these two images. Then in the bottom, he says, then there are two images that illustrate how the pure expanse of ultimate reality dwells amid obscuring defilements that are eliminated on the paths of meditation. Uh, first, he had the paths of, uh, he went through the three roots, latent and manifest, that are the uh, defilements uh, upon the paths that are, exist upon the paths of accumulation and joining. Then he uh, identified the image that relates to Arhats and Pratyeka Buddhas who are on the sort of Hinayana version of the paths of seeing to sets, you might say. And then he talked about the paths of scenes, uh, analogies, and now he's talking about the analogies for the paths of meditation. And he gives uh, two of those. And then on the bottom of 2.14, he says, the nine impurities related to these images are set forth in the Uttara Tantra. Desire, aversion, ignorance, whether in their flagrant state or else's latent tendencies, all that is discarded on the paths of seeing and of meditation. These are different, by the way. The desire, aversion, and ignorance are discarded on the paths of accumulation and joining. And he says, in addition, all that is discarded in the paths of seeing and the meditation and purity subsisting on the pure and impure grounds. The impure grounds are one to seven of the Bodhisattva Bhumis and the pure grounds are eight through 10. These nine analogies are illustrated, these nine uh, different situations are illustrated by analogies like being concealed within a lotus flower. It's a confining secondary defilements where it be were to be distinguished, they would be numbered in their millions. So the, the nine is a, a vast summary of the detailed way that uh, the Buddha nature resides within sentient beings, given the uh, infinite variety of defilements regarding those who have these stains, uh, sentient beings like us or me, uh, the Uttaratantra says childish beings is one class of beings. Arhats is another. Those who train, those on the paths, and those possessed of wisdom are in their respective orders stained by these impurities. And he's sort of summing up the nine by four, by one, by two, and then by two. These images and the impurities they illustrate are laid out in the Uttaratantra as follows. And so he gives us extensive Excellent uh, sort of expansion of these nine analogies. So in the bottom of 2.16, he continues moreover, as it is recounted in the teachings of the Mahaparinirvana Sutra. Interestingly, he gives the word Maha now to the Parinirvana Sutra. And he recounts this uh, uh, story of uh, a giant who uh, has a jewel of diamond and is uh, inserted into his forehead above his eyebrows. And uh, the implication is that the giant is not the, uh, what shall we say, sharpest knife in the drawer or the brightest bulb in the closet. 
Um, and so he has a fight with another giant, sort of like in uh, Game of Thrones. Remember the giants? Uh, and they bang heads, and he loses track of his jewel because of it, it recedes into his forehead. Anyway, the, the, he goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, no, it's still there. Um, and then at the bottom of page 217, he starts explaining it. So, uh, noble sons, such as the plight of beings, because they do not serve and follow a spiritual master, uh, they failed, therefore they fail to see that they have the Buddha nature. This nature is veiled. It is overwhelmed by desire, aversion, and ignorance. And so these beings circle in samsara amid the torments of many different realms of existence, many different types of suffering. The story from the point just indicated the top of 2.18. The text the, from the point just indicated in the text and until the words noble son Within the bodies of all beings are the 10 strengths, the 32 major and minor, 80 minor marks, excuse me, explain the Buddha nature in numerous different ways. Oh, I skip the major and minor marks, I think not. Oh, let's see. Oh, there's a, there's a footnote that's so small. No human being can read that footnote number. Now that's a quotation mark. <laughs> that's humbling, huh? Anyway, uh, these are the uh, famous 112 marks of the Buddha, 32 major and 80 minor. And someday you got to look these up because they're really peculiar. Anyway, um, Within the bodies of all beings are the ten strengths this, uh, that reside in the Dharmakaya and the 32 major and 80 minor marks that are uh, reside in the Rubrakaya. These explains the Buddha nature in numerous different ways. In Hivajatantra, we find great primordial wisdom dwells within the body, wholly free of all discursive thought. All things does it pervade. It dwells within the body, yet from the body it does not arise. Uh, in the precious metal, beings high and everyone are primordially enlightened. So this is the Vajrayana version of this Buddha nature concept, uh, where where the Vajrayana version is just completely um, uh, proclaiming at full enlightenment from the start. We are all primordially enlightened, but through the power of thought, being circle and samsara, to free them all, I generate the attitude of Bodhicitta, Supreme Awakening. Wisdom of the moment of death, Sutra says, when the mind is understood, this is Buddha. All you need to do is understand your mind. Just that one thing. It's with you all the time. It's right there. You should strongly cultivate the attitude of mind of thinking that nowhere else should Buddha be sought. But it is not found in meditation, it's not found in study, it's not found in conduct, it's not found in, in health, food, and exercise, and desires, the, uh, or in anger. It's just right there in your mind. The precious, the praises of mind, Vajras, it's just what are dwells unsullied in the very heart of earth. Primal wisdom also dwells unsullied in the midst of our defilements. Nuguya Garbhataja says that any of the four times 
or times of the past, present, future, and now. Nowness or the ten directions, which are the four cardinal, four intermediate directions, and the nadir and the uh, whatever. No perfect Buddha will be found. The perfect Buddha is the mind itself. Therefore, do not look elsewhere for Buddhahood, where even the enlightened ones cannot discover it. Thus, it set forth in these and other sacred texts and shortened should be understood with the help of metaphors such as that of the great sheet of silk as vast as 3,000-fold universe, which he goes through at the end. So we'll come to that very cool story. That the kayas and wisdoms of Buddha dwell primordially within all beings as inalienably as sunlight in, in the sun itself. Inalienable rights to Buddhahood, to Buddha nature. This Buddha element is at all times naturally pure and changeless. The stains upon it are adventitious and imaginary. As the commentary to the Uttaratansha by Sangha says, great sage defilements are darkness, whereas perfect purity is light. Defilements are weak. As profound insight for Pashna is of great strength. Defilements are adventitious, whereas natural purity is the fundamental root. Being primordial and stained, the Buddha element is pure changeless and on movement. Uh, my IMAP server closed the connection. It was still live. Okay. Sometimes you have to ignore error messages, right? Uh, let's see. Changeless and unmoving. It's the supreme identity. Being at all times present, it is everlasting, and though it has fallen into the samsaric state of sufferings, it is not overwhelmed. Thus, it is transcendent bliss. These, this is uh, sort of controversial, uh, radical proclamation that the, the true nature of our reality is pure, it's unchanging, it's uh, and it's uh, blissful, pure, unchanging, and uh, blissful, which is the opposite of how the the uh, the three marks of existence are presented in the early teachings of the Buddha. Eric. Yes, ma'am. Uh, the word identity. What 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 does that refer to? It is the supreme identity. It is our supreme nature. It's uh, let's see. Um, and it's, it's also in that quote, purity, yeah. identity, happiness. Yeah, it's interesting that they translated it this way. It's the word that is often translated as self. So there's actually four qualities. They sort of merged. No, they, they listed four of them separately. There's four colons, right? The, the Buddha element is pure, so purity. The second one is it's the supreme self. <laughs> which is totally like blasphemy in Buddhism, you know? I mean, if, if Buddhism is, if you know, you ask, what is the essence of Buddhism? Selflessness. <laughs> yeah, absence of self, right? So, but it's self, it's the supreme self with a big S. <laughs> so that's so, Buddha nature? Or? It has qualities. Buddha nature has these four qualities. The Buddha element is one, pure. Two, it's the supreme identity. Three, it's un, unchanged, everlasting. 
and four, it's bliss. The the uh, gr grammatical presentation that's a little bit odd, but it's these four qualities of Buddha nature that are presented in the Mahaparinirvana Sutra. Uttaratantra says its results are the transcendent qualities of purity, identity, happiness, and permanence, the opposites of the four marks of existence or three marks. Purity is, is often thrown in there as a, another quality, and uh, it's, a, the, it's a way of mapping the three marks of the marks of existence to the four noble truths and the four foundations of mindfulness. But anyway, we digress. Digress. The Tathagatagarbha pervades all beings. In the Sutra Lamkara, just as it is said that space is ever, always everywhere, likewise it is said to be at all times present. Just as space pervades all forms, likewise it pervades the multitudes of beings. This Buddha nature, essence, sorry, is veiled by defilements, and yet in itself it is of the unsullied is a member of the unsullied. It is like the sun enshrouded by the clouds from the very first until the time of awakening. It is indestructible and inseparable from us. It's a little bit repetitive, just sort of like the same theme over and over and over again. But uh, maybe that's helpful. As it said in the commentary to the Uttaratanjaka, the Garba pervades all beings under three conditions, yet it remains unchanged by either defilement or purity. And these three conditions, excuse me, are mentioned in the Uttaratanjaka. Impurity, 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 and other, utter, utter purity. And these respectively uh, describe this, the state of uh, normal sentient beings are uh, where in the state of impurity. And then uh, bodhisattvas are in the state of uh, partial impurity and partial purity as they're on the paths. And then Tathagatas are in the state of utter purity. And he describes that uh, in the next paragraph, I'll skip the first sentence then. He says, but what is the Buddha potential like? As if he hasn't already been describing it for many pages. He has quite a subtle sense of humor, if you, if you can, can be careful and pick up on it. There is no image that can adequately illustrate it, even though he just illustrated it like endlessly, right? And therefore, it's said to resemble the condition of the Tathagata, the Uttaratantra says, because it's beyond the world, there's nothing in this world whereby we can imagine it, other than a zillion analogies. But this is why it's been taught that the Buddha element is like the Tathagata beyond conception. On the other hand, according to the way the Buddha element actually is, it does not actually resemble any of the images supplied. So, you know, those are all facsimiles. But the actual Buddha element is not like those facsimiles. Because although the nature is one and the same, yet there are differences according to different conditions. So this is what uh, I was trying to explain to Cynthia earlier on that he was going to describe. Uh, let's see. And thus it is that nine images apply to the Buddha element only in a piecemeal fashion. Who is able to behold the Buddha nature truly? Only the Buddhas see it as it is. People have been accepted by a spiritual master, but who have no direct realization of the fundamental nature. 
and the Shravakas in particular Buddhists, and beings who have faith in the Mahayana, and also the Bodhisattvas dwelling on the grounds or boomies of realization, understand it only in the manner of an aspiration, in terms of a general idea or a universal. And this is the technical term, way of a technical way of describing a, con a concept. Concept is called a general idea or universal. So all of these different beings merely have a conceptual understanding of the Buddha nature. Even the Bodhisattvas on the tenth ground realize this nature only partially. Commentary to our conscience, just the sun is glimpsed by the clouds, those who are intelligent perceive it only partially, even no beings with clear eyes or their minds do not hold it fully. You, the Lord, Buddha, see the spotless Dharmakaya, endless wisdom, the ultimate expanse replete with knowledgeable objects numberless. The Buddha element or essence subsists the Buddha field wheel of ornaments. The ornaments question being the three kinds together with the primordial wisdoms within the nature of the mind. So he's going to try to describe the way the Buddha nature actually is from the point of view of a Buddha. That's a Buddha field called the wheel of ornaments has a name and those ornaments are the kayas, the three kayas, together with the primordial wisdoms within the, the nature of the mind. When it's seen exactly as it is, this is Buddha. These texts that he's been commenting from and all texts that teach that Thakata Garba should therefore be explained and cherished. So the third turning teachings should be uh, held in high esteem. The beings who are on the path of learning the Buddha element is understood through faith and in a general manner through a conceptual understanding. As it is said in, the, in this commentary, again, the ultimate truth of the self risen wisdom must be realized through faith. The blazing orb, circle of the sun, is invisible to those who have no eyes and essence of the Lama Sutra, describes how it is seen only in part and not completely, and it gives this great analogy of like how do people who are blind ever come to an understanding of the way certain phenomena and if you describe it to them they uh, understand there's some senses that they they do have that function uh, the same sutra gives another example of how difficult it is for other beings to realize the Tathagata to Garvan in this famous example of the king inviting uh, nine nine blind men he doesn't give a number necessarily but blind men to describe an elephant and they each you know uh, uh, approach the elephant, find one part of it, and they each describe the elephant as being just that part. It's an analogy that's used uh, in other other ways as well, a story. Anyway, the noble bodhisattvas have a slight understanding of it. They fail to see it precisely as it is, and quoting the Parinirvana Sutra, um, another analogy of uh, eye surgery. The metaphors that the sutra then goes on to give illustrate the fact that whereas the Buddha essence is partially glimpsed, it is not understood with complete certainty. It can be, could be argued that if the Buddha essence, subtle as it is and hard to realize, cannot be seen by ordinary beings. There's no point in teaching it. He goes through the, the traditional reasons of why it's important to teach it. But being told that the Buddha nature is present in our and other minds will prevent us from losing hope. That's one, that's the first of five reasons. Helps us uh, have hope. We have hope for enlightenment because we possess Buddha nature. It's a little bit of an odd reason, but through understanding that liberation is not hard to achieve, we will have enthusiasm. All you have to do is clear away those adventitious defilements from that jewel-like Buddha nature 
that is the nature of your mind. Um, neither will we belittle others, but will respect them as the equals of the Buddha. Our teacher, all beings have the Buddha nature equally. So nobody's better or nobody's worse. Dispelling ignorance regarding the presence of the kinds and wisdom of ultimate reality within us, we will acquire wisdom whereby the ultimate expanse will be realized. It will actually help us uh, understand the nature by trying to understand the nature of reality. Uh, knowing thus the fundamental mode of being, we will avert all misconceptions with regard to existence and non-existence permanence and discontinuity and thus we will have we will have access to the primordial wisdom that realizes the ultimate truth by avoiding a proud sense of superiority and self-centeredness we will perceive that others are of equal importance to ourselves and will have a great love for all sentient beings these are the five reasons for which the teaching on the Buddha essence has been expanded and uh, he quotes the Uttara Tantra that asks why, and he gives the answer from the Uttara Tantra. Disheartedness, contempt for lesser beings, believing what is incorrect, negating perfect qualities, excessive self-love. For those who harbor these five defects, thus he spoke that they might give them up. If these five faults are discarded, five qualities will ensue enthusiastic joy, respect for others as if they were the teacher themselves, wisdom, primal wisdom, and great love. Through the birth of these five qualities, there comes the freedom from wrongdoing and the view that all are equal. Thus, those who have a mistaken view regarding the Buddha nature assume an arrogant demeanor. Anybody who's arrogant doesn't understand Buddha nature, basically. Their faces are covered with the golden net of wrong opinions. So, uh, you know, it, it's like a very fancy, but still a uh, state of delusion, but, you know, uh, looks nice, golden. And they turn their backs on the sutras of definitive meaning. He's talking about people who put down the third turning teaching. They turn their backs on the sutras of definitive meaning and the view of the secret mantra. Uh, some, some beings... Uh, separate the view of sutra and tantra and thereby misunderstood the two misunderstand the two saying that this quintessential teaching is of a mere expedient value that the buddha nature is an expedient teaching and the only definitive teaching is emptiness that's what some people think those who are arrogant uh, they speak like this because they think that the result arises from a cause oh just because the Buddha said that everything arises uh, as a result from a cause doesn't mean he was talking about the Buddha nature. It's so silly. If it were not so, the result, that, so they think, would be like the permanent self of the non-Buddhists. Oh, my God. They therefore declare with an absolute certainty that even the two kayas of the Buddha manifest from the twofold accumulations. Can you believe that? They think that the twofold accumulations produce the two kayas, as if the kayas were something that could be produced by causes and conditions. Imagine that, how they denigrate the Buddhas. Unbelievable. Shame. Shame on you. Isn't there like a news show? They go, shame on you. 
Yay, oh, you have fine faces decked with lotuses. It's a way of being made up, I guess. The truth is that you fail to understand the wisdom intention of the teachings expounded in the three turnings of the wheel of Dharma. Um, you consider as definitive the, ex the uh, extreme position of emptiness. The teachings of the first turning of the Dharma wheel intended for beginners and those of basic capacity of the four truths are expounded in terms of what is to be rejected together with the remedies to this so that beings may turn away from samsara. These teachings describe the methods whereby beings are freed from what is to be abandoned such as the truths of suffering and origin. So it's going through the three turnings to the wheel. Now as a means to escape the fetters of clinging to these remedies as being ultimate. The middle turning of the Dharma wheel expounds space-like emptiness and the eight similes that illustrate the illusory nature of all things, which is what the second volume of Finding Rest is about. These teachings were given for the sake of beings of moderate capacity and for those who have trained in the earlier teachings, those of moderate capacity. The final turning of the Dharma wheel was intended for those who have perfected the pre previous teachings and for those of great capacity. It expounds the nature of phenomena just as it is. The Buddha essence as taught in the third turning is not the same as the self of the non-Buddhists who, destitute of true knowledge, impute real existence to the self. This self of theirs has no existence at all. The non-Buddhists quantify it as great or small, and they do not affirm that it possesses the kayas and wisdoms. You who say that the teaching on the Tathagatukarva is of only expedient value have a view that clings to no self, the first turning, and emptiness, the self, the second turning, which is no more than an attitude, uh, sorry, an antidote to the self and non-emptiness. It does not constitute the definitive teaching of the Buddha. In the Parnirvana Sutra, we find the following parable. Um, and he goes through this whole parable about that, that demonstrates uh, um, how the Buddha goes about presenting um, uh, says white lies, basically. Right, just like the mother lies about um, her ability to to provide milk to her child, so that her child won't seek uh, her milk at a at a time when it's not healthy for the child. Um, the Buddha does that to uh, students and lies to us and says, "Oh, uh, uh, there's a mind and there's defilement, and you need to overcome them." And then he says, oh, everything is empty, totally, completely empty. And he lies to us. He does that so that we get over certain fixations. First, we are fixated to existence, and he presents uh, the, the existence of the self, and he presents the absence of the self. And then, uh, uh, <laughs> then he presents the uh, emptiness of all phenomena. And we have to as the antidote to our fixation on existence. And then he has to correct that over emphasis by teaching the third turning. Whereas the, as the uh, third turning sutras say, where, where the distinction between the way things don't exist and the way things do exist is 
presented and detailed and clearly, meaning that phenomena don't exist in the sense of having true uh, intrinsic reality of their own, but that the Buddha nature, the Buddha element exists, uh, permanent, unchanging, pure, blissful, and uh, and selfish, or something, if you want to call that remaining quality. Laura, Laura, sorry. Um, so just um, kind of a funny point. Zong Sir Kensei Rinpoche, when he talks about the different turnings, you know, he it's, he's funny about it. He talks about, you know, sometimes the Buddha was not telling you the whole truth or was kind of telling you a story or lying to you. You know, he, he presents it that way. And then he talks about, you know, the third turning and the ultimate and all that kind of stuff. So it's just kind of something to look out for. Um, and yeah, it is a good thing that it didn't stop with the emptiness, <laughs> you know, it's good that there's, there is something, you know, it's not so. That's so bleak, huh? It, 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 yeah. Yeah. I think people don't realize that. And it is kind of what you, are you kidding? Is that, you know, it, so. It's a necessary it, stage. Yeah. yeah. Necessary stage though, that people need to go through. They need to experience oh, yeah. complete groundlessness. Oh yeah. I'm not saying we skip over it. I'm just saying it is, it does make sense that yeah. you need that third turning. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Derek? Yeah. This is Buddha nature does that just apply to sentient beings? Yes. It has nothing to do with phenomena in general. Uh, phenomena are not real. Right. So <laughs> So the second so the 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 third turning just applies to sentient beings? That's all there is. That's all there is. Sentient being, being <laughs> uh -huh. sentient. Uh -huh. There's nothing that there's nothing that's not sentient. Okay, and that was established. <laughs> the second turning. <laughs> well, you know, in in that uh, sort of contradictory chapter that he had on the nature of mind and outer objects, mm -hmm. you know, where it it, it, it seemed like. First, he would say, well, everything's mine. There are no extra mental objects. And then he would say, well, no, I'm not saying that external objects are mine. Right. You know, he, he, there's this very fine middle path between those two as extreme views of, mm -hmm. oh, everything is mine, or, oh, there's things that do exist separate from the mind. And that middle path is that the phenomena don't actually have any existence because they're empty. And so they're not separate from mind. And yet mind does not have any true existence. Therefore, we can't say that all phenomena are mind. Aren't you glad you asked that question? <laughs> <laughs> I had the same question, by the way. I, I was wondering about plants. I was thinking about plants and things, you know, but Derek I, answered it. 
So. Ideally, that that let your mind relax into a non-conceptual state beyond uh, deciding the way things are. But um, Barbara, Barbara we, got, she's still there. I'm sorry, Eric. But we can we can say that there's no phenomena outside the Dharmadhatu. Yes. I'll go for that, totally. I think he would agree with that. Yeah. It doesn't mean that there's phenomena in the Dharmadhatu. Well, of course not. The Dharmadhatu is changeless. <laughs> well done, well said. Sometimes it's helpful not to say more than you need to to answer something, right? <laughs> On uh, 227. Actually, on the top, let's finish that quote because it's very cool. Um, which, uh, let's, let's do the very bottom of 226. Um... You should not consider that the Tathagata Garbha is non-existent. When formerly in the Prajnaparamita, the sutras, I expounded emptiness. You should understand that I did so thinking only of the fact that phenomena have no intrinsic being. Meditation on an emptiness that is a mere nothingness will not result in the arising of the kayas and wisdoms of Buddhahood. For a result must follow upon its causes. It is in such a manner that emptiness means the emptiness of concepts that grasp things in the very moment of their perception as being either one or many. It means the emptiness of their intrinsic being. Things are like reflections in a mirror. Emptiness does not mean that things are like imaginary objects that in the past did not exist and the present don't and the future will not, as is said in the Heart Sutra. So isn't that great? First he says, uh, emptiness, uh, let's see, it means the emptiness of their intrinsic being. Things are like reflections in a mirror. Then he says, emptiness does not mean that things are like imaginary objects that don't exist. And to prove that, he says, in the heart search, it says form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Emptiness is no other than form, and form is no other than emptiness. Same is true for etc. <laughs> that was the proof of that elusive middle way statement. And the middle-length Prashnaparamita declares that every phenomenon is in its own time empty by nature. If there were no form, how could there be emptiness of form? In the Uttaratantra, it says, emptiness endowed with supreme aspects has been likened to a portrait. Portrait That's complete. So this term, emptiness endowed with the supreme of all aspects, is the description of the nature of reality of Buddhahood, of Dharma. Dhatu, then, uh, and therein is nothing to remove, and thereto not the slightest thing to add. The perfect truth viewed perfectly and perfectly beheld is liberation. In other words, the defilements don't really exist. The Buddha element is void of what is adventitious, which has the character of something separable. The adventitious defilements are separable from the Buddha nature. The Buddha nature is empty of defilements. This is the source of the empty of other teachings in the Tibetan tradition called Zhentong. This element is not itself devoid of supreme qualities. 
with a nature which have the character of what cannot be parted from it, inseparable from it. Said in the commentary, what is is being set forth in this, what is being set forth in this passage, what the heck is he saying? The Tathagata Garba is in its nature utterly pure. There is no reason at all to remove defilements from it because its very nature is freedom from adventitious things. And there's not the slightest reason for pure qualities to be super added to it. <laughs> super added to it. For its nature, uh, the Dharma Dhatu is already endowed with pure and inalienable rights, I mean qualities. Therefore, the Tathagata Garba is empty of defilements that are alien to it and that may be removed, separated from it. It's not empty of the inconceivable qualities of enlightenment. So it's twofold nature, inconceivable quality of uh, of these sort of logically contradictory qualities. And it's not empty of the inconceivable qualities of enlightenment, which are more numerous than the grains of sand in the Ganges River and from which it cannot be parted by any means. So it is said, therefore, to affirm that it is empty with regard to what is absent from it, namely defilements is the correct way of seeing. Furthermore, to say that whatever superior quality it possesses is present in it permanently is to understand the nature properly, just as it is. The two kayas of a Buddha are present from the beginning. That which obscures them is dispelled by the two accumulations. That's the cause and effect. The cause is the accumulations and the effect is the removal of the, of the obscurations. But there's no impact of that situation, that causal situation on the kayas, on the Buddha element. It's not the case that the action of the spelling is the productive cause of the productive produced result of the two kayas. For in that case, it would follow that the Dharmakaya's mokar conditioned and thus impermanent. Dharmaka is therefore beyond all movement and all change, as is said in the Madhyamaka Avatar. So he quotes the Madhyamaka Avatar, which is the quintessential commentary to the second turn teachings to bring home his point about this uh, inconceivable nature of the Buddha nature. This peaceful kaya, radiant like the wish fulfilling tree, is like the wishing jewel that without forethought lavishes the riches of the world on beings till they gain enlightenment. It is perceived by those who are beyond conceptual construction. In the last line, he says it's, it's actually perceived by those who are enlightened. This kaya, the peaceful kaya, the Buddha nature, doesn't actually say the term Buddha nature, but in essence, he's saying that same thing. Buddhahood is perceived. And you to Ratanshir, because he has the mastery of every quality, because death's demon is destroyed, because one is without intrinsic nature, and because one is the lord of all the world, therefore it's permanent. And again, in contradiction of the causal process, it says it is unconditioned, spontaneously present, it's not known through outer causes, endowed with knowledge, love and power, the three main qualities of Buddhahood. Um, it is Buddhahood, the fulfillment of the twofold aim. It is uh, thus the process of enlightenment in terms of cause and result of something that engenders and something that is engendered is denied. Consequently, the meaning of no self-emptiness, non-duality, and so on, should be understood in the following way. In the 
Mahaparinirvana Sutra, the Buddha says, the secret essence of the Tathagata, to the Buddha nature, is entirely, is utterly pure, said to be beyond change and movement, even if it's described as existing, the wise and learned should not cling to it. To describe it as non-existent is to speak falsely. Inferior people deny it as non-existent. They fail to understand the secret essence of the Tathagata. It goes on and on and on, basically saying the same thing over and over again. Um, uh, substituting different qualities, blissful, pure, self, unchanging, and so on. So I'm going to skip the rest of that quoting, skip to its conclusion on the top of 231. He's talking about the fourth quality of self. Uh, the Tathagata Garbha is therefore praised by all the Bhagavan Buddhas as boundless, immeasurable, and infinite. I I, too, have expounded it in detail in the sutras of the last turning of the Dharma wheel. And in the Magical Display Sutra, it said that the Ichantikas, the Ichantikas are the cut-off family. It's like those people that are cut off from Buddhahood, this idea that's introduced. There's certain early third-turning uh, third sutras that present this odd idea of there being different uh, sort of families of beings, Shravakas, Pratyeka Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, and then the cut-off family and the uncertain family, the indeterminate family or the doubtful family. And uh, there's actually some sutras that say that those two latter families won't be able to achieve Buddhahood. And of course, then uh, everybody has to spend a lot of time explaining how that was not really meant to say what it said. So he's going to explain the, that the Achantikas, when it says that the Achantikas will never pass beyond sorrow, in this sutra called Magical Display, uh, that says, well, there's cut off people that will never achieve nirvana or Buddhahood. And when this same text speaks of them as cut off from the Buddha potential, Buddha nature, one might conclude that the Buddha essence is not, in fact, possessed by all beings. Oh my God, this, however, is not so. This was said with regard to those who, having given up on the teachings of the great vehicle, will not gain freedom for a very, very long time. And to those who strain from the path are temporarily separated from the Buddha nature, Buddha potential developed on the path. They are not, however, cut off from the luminosity that is the very nature of their own minds. So the commentary to Utantra says, when the Buddha said that the Chantikas would never pass beyond sorrow, he was thinking in terms of another time. <laughs> he said it in order to remove aversion to the dharmas of the great vehicle, the Mahayana, for it is hostility to the teaching of the Mahayana that produces the condition of being cut off. Since they possess, they still possess Buddha nature, and since they've generated the condition that cuts them off from the accumulation of the two accumulations. Uh, but since they possess the utterly pure Buddha, potential is wrong to think that they will never become utterly pure for thinking of the fact that all beings without distinction may be purified. The Buddha declared that though the veil is beginningless, it has an end. Their delusion will come to an end. That which is naturally pure and permanent has been enveloped from beginningless time by a sheath of defilement and consequently has not been seen. It is like a golden statue hidden beneath the veil. 
from time without beginning, the pure expanse of ultimate reality, the Buddha potential dwells in all beings. The time will come when each one of them will become utterly pure. Though the veil is beginningless, it has an end. And so it is established that all sentient beings will become Buddhas. And, uh, and there's these sutras where the Buddha starts predicting everybody's Buddhahood, all of all these Shravakas, saying, even you, you Shravakas, you will become a Buddha, so-and-so, and the Buddha field, so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. The awakening of the two kinds of Buddha potential is accompanied by signs. The signs of the awakening of naturally present potential is that, that is the Dharmakaya of the two types. The first time is the Dharmakaya type of naturally present potential are described as follows in Chandrakirti's Madhyamagavatara, the second turning. Certain simple ordinary people in the here emptiness will feel a joy that leaps and surges in their hearts. Anybody like that? Who like, when you first heard about emptiness, it just felt like total liberation. Their eyes fill, will fill with tears. The hairs upon their skin will stand up. Emptiness. Such people are the vessels for the teaching. They have the seed of wisdom, perfect Buddha, have the final truth should be revealed to them and whom ensuing qualities will come to birth. So having excitement about the teaching of emptiness is, is the sign of the uh, the awakening of the Dharmakaya aspect. The sign of the awakening of the naturally present potential that is the appearance of the Rupakaya aspect is described as follows. Compassion prior to embarking on the path. So those that are naturally compassionate, just naturally compassionate people. Interest and acceptance of others, interest in others, acceptance of others, of diversity, of difference, of whatever. Perfect virtuous uh, practice are said to be the certain signs of the potential of those who are beginning to awaken the, uh, the naturally present potential the appearance aspect. As for the benefits of the awakened Buddha potential of same text says, even if for uh, a long time later they must go to lower realms, it will only be for a short while. Maybe they left something there, they just got to pick it up and they'll be right back before dinner time. As the text says, once the Buddha potential has been awakened, even though it's possible to be reborn in lower realms, when it's quickly freed therefrom, like a ball of silk bouncing up from the ground. Suffering but little, the bodhisattvas feel an intense weariness of the world and bring beings to maturity. If beings did not possess this Buddha potential, they would feel no sorrow in the midst of pain. And some of them would feel no impulse to leave samsara to attain nirvana. It's like some people, when they first hear the Dharma, like click immediately. It's like, you know, whoa. And uh, other people, it takes a long time. Even the desire to be free would not arise in their minds. On the other hand, the fact that even in the absence of anyone to teach them, some beings feel pity for those who suffer um, and feel revulsion with their existential condition when they themselves feel pain. Probably many of us came to the Dharma by feeling like this existential pain of like, just life sucks, life sucks, but is there no alternative? this is said to be through the power of the pure expanse of ultimate reality that they have from within them from beginningless time. So Buddha nature is that which understands the samsara suffering and 
dreams of a, of a resolution to suffering, thinks there must be some alternative to suffering. That is what Buddha nature is. I have Buddha, that's how Buddha nature manifests in sentient beings, by understanding suffering and by thinking maybe there's a, an end to suffering. We did not have the Buddha elephant, element, <laughs> elephant, <laughs> Buddha element. No sorrow would one feel in pain. <clears throat> no wanting would there be to pass beyond all suffering and nirvana. No interest and no aspiration would there be for the scene, the scene of the faults and sorrows of existence, the qualities and happiness of the state beyond all sorrow comes from the possession of the Buddha potential. If this potential were not there, it would not come. Having thus shown in some detail how the possession of this potential means that one possesses the essence of Buddhahood, I will conclude with the following poetic interlude. It's going to wax poetic, his own poetry, not from some other sutra. He gives this beautiful little presentation. Without exception, every being has the essence of a tsubita enveloped in its shrouded, adventitious stains, wherein the clear light flame of the expanse of ultimate reality from time without beginning dwells. The kayas and the wisdoms dwell in every being spontaneously present, never to be parted. When emptiness and the essence of compassion are achieved, this but element receives the name of the enlightened state and brings about the good and happiness of every being present of itself from time without beginning. But like sun and sky concealed by clouds, it is obscured by adventitious stains. Thus pain is suffered in existence, which is like a dream. Cultivate a strength of diligence in order to remove defilement. These appearances of the six migrations adventitious and illusory produced by karma and habitual tendencies are but the stuff of dreams. In the past, present, past, and future, they are utterly unreal, though they appear. Primal wisdom luminous is present of itself from the very first. Beings have it constantly, yet at this time they don't see it. Just as when asleep, they don't see their place of rest. Therefore, don't cling to what is meaningless, imaginary, defile, but in the clear light of the mind's own nature, train yourself. Seize for yourself and others all the riches of the twofold goal. Then he spends the next couple of pages giving this amazing description of how does ignorance actually arise, which is really cool. So we're, we're soon to be out of time. Uh, I think we should save this part for next week. Why is it that beans wander in samsara, even though they possess this potential? And let's finish up by going through this uh, this cool analogy of the silk um, cloth at the end there, because that's what it links into what he went through for the rest of the chapter. So on 239, that's okay. And somebody would try to remember that we stopped. We have to go back and do uh, 235. And yet throughout the time that they wander senselessly in the desert of the world, they nevertheless possess, as it has been shown above, the Tathagata Garba. So first he describes why sentient beings wander in samsara, even though they have it. And then he concludes and says, and yet throughout the time they wander senselessly 
even though they possess it, as has been shown above the the Tathagata the Garbha is their very nature, nature, and from that suture. So then he gives this very cool analogy of like of uh, what would of what would it be like if there was a painting of the universe that was as big as the universe? <laughs> Did anyone else like this this analogy? Like a painting of the world that's as big as the world. Where would you put it? <laughs> you would put it in in a uh, infinitesimally small atom. That's the only place to store it, right? So uh, he describes the silk equal. He says, "Kyo, child of the Buddha." So it is. Imagine an immense expanse of silk cloth, equal in size to all the worlds of the three thousand fold universe. Which, by the way, is is uh, a thousandfold universe multiplied three times. Uh, and on this vast sheet of silk are painted all the worlds of the entire universe. Thus, it is devised. The great sheet of silk is painted over every part of extent. The three thousand universe is painted equal in size to the worlds of the three thousandfold universe. So. The first thousand is a thousand universes, and then you have a thousand, thousand, a thousand, thousand, thousands. It's a lot of universes. And each universe, of course, has a Mount Meru and the four continents, and they have eight subcontinents, and so forth. Anyway, so it goes through this whole scheme of this painting. And then uh, on the next page, let's see, 240, it says, um, the first full sentence says, "Lengths and width, this great sheet of silk is of a size equal to the worlds of the three thousand fold universe, and nevertheless, it's placed within a single, infinitesimal part, infinitesimal particle." Where did they come up with this stuff? How do they? How do they? How do they come up with this? This you was guys, really... you guys have to watch Infinite Potential. Okay. That movie, it's. It's incredibly related to what we're talking about. Cool. Is that on? I highly recommend it. Yeah. I, I mean, I didn't understand everything, but. Is that on Netflix? I don't know where. It is out. I can send you a link for it. I've got yeah. an email with the links in it. Okay. But this whole thing, this whole view, it's amazing. It's placed within a single infinitesimally small particle. In the same way that it was placed within a single infinitesimal particle, it's placed in each and every infinitesimal, full, infinitesimal, I have a hard time with that word, particle in the 3,000-fold universe. That's a lot of particles. Um, how can you place the same painting within different particles? Uh, now it came to pass that certain beings were born wise and learned perspicacious, perspic perspicacious, and clear-minded, with eyes endowed with divine sight, pure and clear, and with their godlike eyes they looked upon this great silken sheet. <laughs> Where was it? They looked. It was in the particles. How could anyway? And they saw that it was enclosed within a tiny infinitesimal particle, but that's of no use to anybody. <laughs> And they bethought themselves. Now, come on. These translators, it's like, where do you come up with translating bethought in English? Bethought is like old English. 
the way the Bible needs to be translated, right? I don't, that's like not right. The Buddha never said be thought. He said they thought to themselves, come on. And then on top of that, they say, K Mamala. <laughs> they be thought themselves. K Mamala. That's a great one. K Mamala. This infinitesimal particle, particle were forcibly split with great power. The great sheet of silk will sustain all beings. Now, why would a sheet of silk sustain all beings? Anyway, this is like the atomic energy, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, and so they contrived the great energy and power with a tiny little Vajra instrument, like a really small screwdriver. They split the infinitesimal bowl infinitesimal particle and as they had thought this great sheet of, sheet of silk did indeed support and sustain all beings i don't know what that means did they eat it did they live on it or was it like their bed covers at night for everybody like one big sheet this, this sounds like it's the equivalent of the what is it loaves and fishes or something the the christian thing where you know they were able to feed endlessly with the same limited amount of food i'm not a christian expert but there was there's this is almost like the buddhist equivalent of that and and as they had thought this great sheet did indeed support everybody and just as they had done to this one infinitesimal particle likewise they did to all the other particles without exception i don't know how long that took but i guess we'll fast forward to the end Yay, O child of the Buddha. Likewise, the unbounded primal wisdom, the Tathagata, the primal wisdom that sustains all beings, permeates the mind streams of all beings. And the mind streams of beings are likewise as unbounded as the primal wisdom, the Tathagata. So it is. The childish beings, fettered by their clinging their thoughts and perceptions, do not know the primal wisdom of the Tathagata. They're completely ignorant of it. They do not experience it. They do not realize it. But perceiving with his wisdom, free from all attachment, that the Dharmadatta dwells present in all beings, the Tathagata herself transformed herself into a teacher who declared, Kei Mamala, beings know nothing of the perfect primal wisdom, the Tathagata, even though they're completely permeated by it, I will therefore reveal to them the paths of the noble ones. Thus may they, they may eliminate and destroy all the fetters. Fetters, get rid of all those fetters that their thoughts contrive. The Mahayana Sutras are just wild. There's just like so much wild stuff in the Mahayana Sutras. Many of them um, begin with these cosmic scenes of like all these Buddhas and rays of light and different Buddha fields. And then one of the common uh, ways that they open is that the Buddha sticks out his tongue and his tongue becomes as large as the 3,000-fold world. I'm not making this stuff up. But uh, so you were saying earlier that they were vast and profound, so you have to add wild to that. Yes. Wild and, wild and crazy. Um, definitely. They're uh, unexpected. Anyway, let's end there for tonight. And hey, Mamala. Yay, Mamala. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Any final comments? Hey, Mamala. <laughs> Anyone else? Who's that? Somebody has a little box that has just a dot in the middle. I want to know how they did that. 
Isn't that cool? That's the, that's the infinitesimal particle. You just make a dot your name. You could make an state, exclamation yeah. point all, or a question yeah. mark or a... Right, we could all do that, right? Right. Oh, how do, oh it centers itself. It's naturally centered. Yeah. That's yeah, cool. I, I just did that. Yeah, here we go. Right dot. It's the singularity. Yeah, people are changing. Oh, look, somebody's a question mark now. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's dedicate and say goodnight. Uh, by this marriage, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. The ocean of Sisara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the victim's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. It's loud, isn't it? Thank you. Thank you, Derek. This Good night. Is great. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Derek. Thank See you, you next week. We should be able to finish, I think, next week. So have a big celebration. Remember, everybody bring a lot of food. Bring enough for all of us of whatever you <laughs> Just send it to my house and I'll provide it. We'll bring sake and cake. There you go. Thanks. Take care. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>